a listener production. And welcome to Listenable. Welcome back to Listenable, potentially, unless you're a first-time listener because uh, maybe our next guest shared on social media and for the first time you've come across our podcast. Yeah, we've gone across the ditch yeah. from where we are from in Australia. We have listeners from all around the world, but we're heading over to New Zealand. For someone who's absolutely smashing it, they've been on TV, they've worked all around the world, they're dominating their career, but I think one of the coolest things is the way that she stands up for what she believes in and is very positive about who she is and, and trying to change the lives of a lot of people. And for somebody who is in the media, who is the face of campaigns, she did speak to us about stuff that she's never spoken to anyone about. And when we say anyone, even her partner. Mm. So that was really amazing for her to go into such depth and honesty with us and we hope you appreciate this episode as much as we do. So let's let her introduce herself. Hello. Hello. What, a, what an intro. There's nothing weirder than sitting in silence where other people kind of hype you up. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> but my name is Jess Quinn. I am from New Zealand, so not, not too far global, yeah. but, but global. I struggle to put in one sentence what I do. I have come to describe myself as a storyteller. I kind of um, share my story as a living. I started as a fashion slash product designer and now talk about myself every day, <laughs> which is um, interesting. Yeah. Um, what is your disability? I am an amputee. I had a really unique amputation. So I had what's called a rotation plasty. So um, I highly recommend anyone listening to Google it because there is no way you can visually understand it by a description. Um, But basically I have a knee is my old heel and um, my old quad is my calf muscle. All right. (laughs) Okay. I'm Googling it right now. You use your heel as as a knee joint, so your foot's backwards kind of thing. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, my foot's backwards. I love yeah. it how you turn everyone to Google because everyone listening right now is going to pull over yeah. and be like, yeah, I'm going to Google that right now. <laughs> I'm like. Googling it right now. Yeah. So, yes, you turn like, your heel into your knee joint, but I'm sure the the rest of the foot is amputated itself, so you're just using – no, your foot is backwards. You would be, yeah. Everyone thinks that, like, I still have to cut my toenails once a week or else they rub in my prosthetic. Wow. Can yeah. I – so I used to play tennis <laughs> yes, as a guy. I had no idea. Just looking at this photo, I'm like, oh, surely you get rid of the toes. You know, nah, because you use the foot. So now the toes, yeah, they work quite well as like a, a grip almost. And also, I guess by cutting off the toes, you're adding an unnecessary scar that doesn't need to be oh, there, right? Good. Well, we'll get into why why it helps you walk and stuff. But uh, just anecdotally, I used to play tennis. There was a guy called well, I still play tennis, but he doesn't play anymore. His name's <laughs> Ronald Vink. He was Dutch, size fifteen okay. feet, and he had it. He had the same thing as you, Jess. And when he would hit the ball, his feet were so big, his toes would wiggle, and he would like have wow. his foot out. He wouldn't, oh, outside of the well, he because he's when he's in a wheelchair, your knees sit out, so his foot would be upside down and go forwards. But or he, like wow. it just because he had such big feet, um, you wow. know, when you sit down and your foot goes down, yeah. Shout out to yeah, yeah, shout yeah. out to Ronald Vink if you're a big fan of the podcast. Wow, so, that's amazing. Why do people choose to do that? Is it for walking benefit or? Yeah, for me, the options because uh, of the cancer I had, I had osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer. I had it in my femur bone. Um, and you either have a bone replacement, which is risky and um, can mean a life in and out of hospital and infection, or a full hip disarticulation, which in my case would have been super high into the hip mm. socket. Like the chance of a prosthetic for me would have been next to nothing. Um, so that my only option really, because I wasn't couldn't have the um, the bone replacement, was a rotation plasty. Um, 
Yeah, which was weird in 2001 when there was no way to just hashtag search mm. rotation plastic yeah. and no one in New Zealand had had it done before. So it was, yeah, a bit of an odd one. We're going to talk about your cancer story and go back to your childhood and, and those moments with yourself and your family, of course, and, and dissect that in full. But while we're on this topic of um, you being a storyteller first and foremost and fashion designer, you were also a, an international model. Um, were you? Did you come across many people with disabilities in the international model world? And how did your fellow peers um, treat you in that industry, which can be cutthroat, very vacuous and vain? Yeah, I didn't, answer your first question, really come across any others. Um, I obviously know of others um, who have who have disabilities who I've seen on certain catwalks. Obviously, it's um, few and far between, which is the reason I wanted to do it. But there's definitely, and alongside of the modelling, I do a lot of kind of speaking or panel speaking, and a lot of the stuff we talk about is this kind of tokenism within the body image space, if you like, so or within representation, whether that be disability or size or ethnicity, whatever it is, it's just you often turn up to the photo shoot and you're like, I know why I'm here. You know, you're quite clearly the girl to tick a box for a brand um, or the person. Hey, how do you think I have this job? No, no, just kidding. <laughs> I'm the token able-bodied guy. Token able-bodied white guy over there. Yeah. <laughs> See, we're dominating this conversation, Jess, which I like. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's an interesting kind of space, I guess. And you know, a part of me is like, oh, I don't want to be here if a brand's just trying to tick a box. But then by ticking a box, then that's hopefully one better image out in the world. So, so yeah. interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You rock up and you can see a couple of women of different sizes. You know, you've got different ethnicities and you've got a person with a disability. You rock up and you yeah. go, okay, well, these people just want to come across as the diverse brand for all people. Can I, and I, totally. and yeah, I, I want to add really to that now as well. And I'm not saying, like, saying anything negative towards other streams of diversity, right? But especially in the industry that you work, disability is always the last one ticked, isn't it? They always Usually. do race, gender, yeah. sexual orientation, color. And then they're like, oh, we're done. And I was like, hang on. I always used to be like, so what? You're done. What about, the biggest minority group in the world. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, do you feel totally. like you're kind of like one of, if not the first of what you kind of did, how did you feel when you first got into the industry as I guess trailblazing, trying to influence change in that? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously daunting and you, it's, it's a hard one because I don't feel like I've had a fair um, representational understanding of the industry because the photo shoots that I would be doing was largely for brands who are trying to really push this message. So mm. for the large part, they're reasonably supportive of it. You know, I wasn't mm -hmm. walking for Gucci, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think I've been in an environment where I'm really not welcome because these brands are doing it because they are inclusive in some kind of way, if mm. that makes sense. I tried to just get in there and be like everyone else is, as a lot of us do in that situation or in those kind of situations and just do what I'm there to do. But it is really hard sometimes to push through when you do feel that obvious sense of tokenism. You're obviously speaking about your own um, thoughts around tokenism. I, I dated a, a, an international model and I know the world that she lived in in New York, the sacrifices and ridiculous efforts she went to to do what she believed was fitting in with the social cue norm of being a model. When you feel that you have your own tokenism, did you feel that when you rocked up to those sets, other models were thinking the same way? Did you have that as well, kind of leaning into your mindset that someone else is looking going, oh, okay, my friend Rebecca didn't get this job because, you know, Jess is over here mm. and they want the girl with the disability. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question the right way or, or answer your question at all, but I did feel, I do often feel, and I by no means I've done a lot of modelling, but I haven't been on the full modelling circuit. But 
I do often feel like a little outsider in the shoot. You know, there's like the modeling industry is a very cool girl industry, mm. you know, and I think unfortunately people don't see me as a part of that and so because of the tokenism thing I guess they could be like oh yeah she's here for a separate purpose you know and it's Mm. it does sometimes feel like that but not all the time by all means like I've done a lot of shoots that it is just um really wholesome and amazing but yeah it's um that's definitely you get that sense yeah that's such bs of course yeah why can't the disability you know the awesome talented great storytelling female over there with one leg be part of the cool crew it's bs totally yeah, and, it totally. and it's something George. I must say, I've never faced that in my life. People assume, and we'll get into this later, but people assumed I was bullied at school and all of these things. I've never faced any of that in my life. But being in the modeling industry, and there's yeah. not, there was no bullying or anything, but you do kind of feel a bit like. <laughs> and it's very competitive as well as in that industry and, and fighting for, for particular jobs. And I just wonder you know, whether people would have been like annoyed because uh, the yeah. girl with the disability got a job, whereas, you know, I didn't for, you know, and I'm able-bodied and perfectly beautiful in their own mind. I don't know. It was such totally. a weird world. I must say I definitely got, without using a pun, a leg up in that sense because people wanted someone um, mm. who was diverse. And so I often didn't go to castings like models do. So I'm not competing against heaps of skinny white girls because they wanted a very narrow yeah. role, I guess. So yeah. I didn't have to do that rigorous kind of um casting process and everything like the modeling industry as you say is so competitive so to not have had to have done that was quite nice if you got it floored it i use my wheelchair all the time to get gigs so <laughs> yeah I think it's exactly the same now i just want to get a feel of what you were like growing up so you obviously said before you had cancer and stuff like that but before that what kind of you know young young girl were you tell us a bit about your life yeah, I have a, a very small recollection, partly obviously trauma blocks a lot of things, but also I was only eight and I don't think a lot of us remember life before being eight. Um, but I was a super athletic kid. I grew up in an amazing family. I have two sisters who were and are my best friends um, and sport was my whole life. I My whole eight years, I should say, but you know, I... I really love sport. I played in everything. I was born before a time of social media. So my weekends were filled with just anything outside. I was just that kid who was in the top of every team. I could have never have played the sport and I would trial and I would get in the top. Like I was just naturally athletic and yeah, running was kind of my thing. Um, But I was just a pretty, pretty average kid. Just loved animals, had cool sisters, great parents. Did you have any touch points to disability pre you having Um, your diagnosis? Did you know anything about it? Do you have any family members? Did your family know anything about it? No, not really. Um, I had a a second cousin who's got Down syndrome who we don't spend a lot of time with, but we'd grown up together a little bit. Um, Both of my parents, not a disability, but in terms of the illness I went through, um, my dad had had a stomach cancer and my grand, both my grandparents had died of cancer. So we were kind of familiar with the, the illness side of things, if you like but not a huge amount of um, exposure to disability at all. So how did you come to find out that you had cancer? What was the moments leading up to, was it pains in the leg or? I actually was um, outside playing one day and I stood on a soccer ball. So I was just trying to balance, you know, on a soccer ball, but it would be really cool. Yeah. Fell to the ground, um, fractured my femur bone, which is supposed to be the strongest bone in your body and got rushed to hospital. They put pins up my legs trying to fix the break and sent me on my way. And there is countless records of me or my dad um, reporting with 
pain in my cast so they would take my cast off and be like oh no like we can feel a little bit of a callus under here but it's just scar tissue and there was like reports of that over about four months um until they were like oh she's been complaining a lot and I was out of plaster trying to get back to walking at this point and I was still complaining and so they took me seriously finally um and yeah ran a whole lot of tests and and that uh the word callus really quickly turned into osteosarcoma which um I'm sure raised a few eyebrows. So oh, we got the C right. Uh, we did yeah. the, the rest <laughs> of it was a bit murky. Callus and cancer. It's a it's a typo. Thing, yeah. It's a typo. <laughs> <laughs> there was a mess of some guys. Oh, yeah. Something yeah. on. Uh, I know you're only, the you're only eight and it's a fair bit of trauma. Can you remember when they told you that it was cancerous, what you felt? Did you understand what was going on? I don't remember the exact cancer conversation. I remember the amputation conversation a little bit better. Um, but my life, I think I had already spent probably about four months at that point in the medical world by getting my break seen to in surgeries and all of that kind of stuff. And so it kind of had just started to become a little bit normal. And then all of a sudden I was back in hospital, straight into chemo, all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, so I don't remember that exact conversation, but I remember little bits throughout that journey of, I understood and my parents and the people around me were really open and letting me in on that journey. I wasn't kind of shunned out of it. Um, But I think there's only so much you can understand as an eight-year-old kid. I knew I was sick and it was really bad and everyone around me had no hair and feeding tubes and mm. you know all sorts of things going on but yeah the normal becomes really normal really quickly you know or the abnormal becomes really normal really quickly and then you don't know right from wrong anymore i think i mean i don't know enough about cancer i'm just going to be asked because i'm oblivious is there sure. is the reason that you got it is because it was in your blood was it a genetic thing? no Weirdly, it's the weirdest coincidence, but none of the cancers we've had in our family are at all connected or hereditary so or genetic. It's really weird. And they all happen quite within a close space of time. Um, so, yeah, it was – and I only – you know, you kind of understand your parents' life as you get older because you become an adult and you, people around you become parents. And, you know, so you understand what they went through a little bit more. But it's only now that I think – you know, my mum lost her dad to cancer. My dad had a stomach tumour who's absolutely fine now. And me within the space of, I think, two years. Wow. Um, and at the time, I didn't – you know, you don't know time as a kid. So do you remember having a say about – uh, if you were part of the discussion around the amputation itself or just your parents Good being... Question. Are you asked or are you told? Yeah. Don't remember, to be truly honest, but to be fair, there wasn't really a decision to be made. Mm. It was either death or a rotation plasty in my situation, so there wasn't a situation where yeah, there was a question to okay. ask. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, was, I definitely remember being a little bit a part of the process around the rotation plasty because... That was a decision. I guess my parents would have to make a decision if they just did the full disarticulation or the rotation plasty, um, knowing that the rotation plasty would give me a much better life and ability for independence, but obviously is visually very unusual and is completely unknown, was completely unknown to all of us. So, yeah, I remember being a little bit along, along for the ride for that, but, yeah, there wasn't really any decisions to be had. Uh, part of your incredible storytelling, and I, we're going to share your TED Talk as well, um, even though I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of the topics of it. Uh, hang on, hang on. Just I like doing this. Hands up if you've done a TED Talk on this uh, podcast. Anyone done? Oh, oh, cool. Just checking. I like to do this. Hands up if you have an ounce of humility. Uh, a little bit. You can put your hand up, just. Okay. Can I just say, I listen to so many of these podcasts, and I am laughing the whole way through it. Dylan's in the humor. Hands up if you've spoken to Prince William. 
No one cares, yeah. mate. Oh, it's Prince Harry, bro. It's not, well, correct me up. Hey, Prince, no one cares about Prince Harry at the moment. He's all in the news. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> He's coming on the podcast. Big fan of the podcast. Um, so going back to your TED Talk, you you, you speak about um, your body image, which is – you know, a, a large part of the discussion you have around and, and c- certainly a reason that we wanted to chat to you on this podcast because you've got such an incredible angle on it. Do you remember when you're eight years old, you've had that surgery? Was that the first time that you reflected on yourself, you know, in the mirror or internally on what you look like in your body image? Was that the start of those discussions as Jess Quinn, the storyteller? Not at all. I didn't give a shit, to be honest. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? 100%. Oh <laughs> you can go I did not care at all. I had been living hell for the last month, uh, the last year, and I thought, cool, I've had my leg cut off now. I can go get a leg, another leg that will give me the life that I had before, and I'll be right as rain. Um, I didn't realize learning to walk on a prosthetic would be as challenging as it was, Um, and that's the amazing naivety of an eight-year-old girl. But my body image issues didn't start until most – um, people, particularly young girls, start probably around 13. So I was yeah. going through that as most women do. And I was also going through coming to terms. I was about five years post um, cancer. And I think I was coming to terms with the fact, I guess, what I'd gone through and the implications that that was going to have on my future. So it was kind of a double whammy. Um, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And most of it was also. In that five years, I went from an eight-year-old to a thirteen-year-old. Is that five? I think it's yeah, five. Good math. Um, <laughs> quick math. Quick math. And you know, my body was changing drastically, and I was very skinny when I was six. So all of a sudden, my calf muscle, which was my old quad muscle, isn't growing at the rate that my normal other good thigh is growing. And yeah, I really struggled with that because all of a sudden skinny jeans were baggy jeans on one side mm. and skinny jeans on the other side and mini skirts, in my opinion, didn't look how I wanted them to look. So yeah, I just began to hide away completely. I think I spent um, eight years from that point, not wearing anything shorter than my knee. Eight um, years, so, so 21. Yeah. Yep. I was in wow. my, yeah. Yeah. So you're hmm. full-time pants. I was high top sneakers, full time pants. We'd go on family vacations to hot places every year, and I would sweat my wow. way through it. Um, it was just the only way I could see. There was there was no way I would put on shorts. Why would I put on shorts? You know. And it wasn't until I came out of it that I mean, a lot of us have to go through these things to um, to understand it better. But it's like I was really confident telling my story. I've always told my story. If someone came up to me in the street and asked why I was limping, I would tell them. But just showing it was a whole nother thing. And I think I was ready to leave behind what I'd gone through and hiding was the easiest way to do that. Um, my version of that yeah. was having only my face in my MySpace photos. Wow. When I was 13 to 16, because yeah. I was embarrassed. When I was in person, yeah. I can't have a cloak around me. It looks like I'm in a hovercraft. But You just hold up one of those, yeah. you know, those you go to those silly events and they have the fake Instagram squares. Like a curtain around me? Dylan yeah. would just hold up one of those with a curtain below the knees. Well, I struggled in person to hide it, but on the, on, online is the only place I could. I used to do the same thing. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. So 21 years old, do you remember the day that you first wore shorts? Yeah, I remember the day so clearly. And I'd worn shorts very occasionally at physio because um, I had to, because they had to access my leg, but I would buy men's long shorts just to try cover. Basketball Andrew Bogan and- yeah, basketballs. Yeah, basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Ron James Literally. shorts, put it in down your ankles. Pants, tie pants. Oh, okay. Well, That'd be good this stuff. Is, 
this is not a lie. I would buy track pants, the ones with the zips, all the way up the side, so that the physio could access my leg really easily. Oh, but then I could cover up the warm up pants. That's yeah. what they use. I'd be in the physios looking at it, going, "Ah, oh, she's got zip pants. She's a stripper." <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I was at a friend's house, um, some friends from school. It was summer. They were all in their bikinis hanging out by the pool. And I was in my so not cool um, knee-length denim shorts. And I was sweating. And I remember a friend of mine who I'd been friends with my whole life had said, come upstairs, just throw on some shorts. It's just us. And they will not know to this day how much of a deal that was to me. Like I remember being so scared like the walk from the pool where we were hanging to her bedroom to get the shorts was the longest walk of my life and I remember that so clearly and then she grabbed me a pair of shorts out she's like yep these ones will fit you threw them on the bed and left me to get changed and she literally just would have thought they were throwing on shorts like she would have been and that moment when I stood in front of the mirror it was just the biggest deal for me and to be to be fair I had had I guess some changes made in my prosthetic over that time that made it more realistic and I felt more comfortable in my body. I had a, a prosthetic thigh made that gave me slightly um, a bigger thigh that matched my other leg. Oh, and and so there was color? a few things. Did you have a skin color? Yeah. Color? Okay. Yeah, it's Lycra. I, I, I got them, I get them custom made oh. at, um, at Weta Workshops. But it, it made, all of that kind of led to that moment, I guess. So I can't just say that I all of a sudden found this confidence. There was other things going on. But um, yeah, I remember that being the most liberating feeling in the world. And I never looked back since. And I wear shorts through winter now because I just like shorts. Do you think if you didn't have that time in the mirror that day, you'd be doing what you're doing now? Was that a real turning point? It was a massive turning point for me. Definitely. I, um, I, I think I would have eventually found it, but I don't know how much life I would have missed out on mm. while I was trying to find it when it had been so much later. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know where I would be, but probably not right here. Can you remember the reactions or what I imagine being the lack of reactions when you walked back to the pool <laughs> and you're, and you sat down for the first time with shorts? Yeah, no one. No one cared. I was just <laughs> yeah. a teenage girl wearing yeah. denim shorts like they all were. They didn't even know oh, that that's it was funny. such a big deal for me. You were expecting them all to be like, woo! Yeah! <laughs> yeah. Like the coming out party. No yeah! Oh, Streamers that. come from the love sky. That. That's good. The well, I didn't even think they know that I left the room. That's <laughs> so funny. Oh. It's funny. It's all. It's a battle within your own head for a majority of it, isn't it? Oh, hugely. I did notice the reactions in the streets change a little bit. People yeah. kind of noticed it a bit more and... I think through that time, those years where I was struggling, my mindset changed from these people, because people were staring at me before, I, I walked weird. Um, and so, but my mindset changed from these people are staring at me maliciously to these people are staring at me because they're trying to figure out what's going on with my leg. They're not being malicious. I mean, there's the odd crazy person who literally stops and gets her points, points and gets her kids to look. Yeah. That's weird. But there's always going to be one, you know? I love learning on this podcast and I've never thought about, uh, we've talked about prosthetics a lot, um, but never has someone actually made me realize that tailoring a prosthetic doesn't necessarily have to be about um, the stump itself. It has to be around the aesthetic because you probably would have had, compared to your other working leg, a different Can aesthetic, I like wasted muscle, like less mass. Yeah. It's actually not a dumb question, Angus, because I think this is a Jess trademark in all seriousness. Oh. I don't know many people who have the rest of the leg molded around the to aesthetic match. to look similar of the other one? Because your leg would look size-wise, muscle-wise, would look nothing like your other leg, right? Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> it's insane how different it looks. I mean, my I would, just for visuals, because obviously this is a podcast, I would say my calf is probably the size of my forearm. 
if not smaller. And my foot hasn't really grown since I was a kid. So yeah, it's a lot smaller than my other leg. Um, And it's not, I mean, it is an aesthetic thing. That's the sole purpose that I get prosthetic thighs and things like that. But it is also a comfort thing. There's nothing more irritating than one leg being baggier and it's bunching and it's moving differently on one side than Mm. the other. And also the way, you know, I've, I'm a guinea pig in New Zealand for the surgery. So I've worked with a prosthetic team to get my prosthetic to where it is. And then I've gone all around the world since and seen other prosthetists. And it's not until I did that, that they're like, wow, for a rotation plaster, you would have no idea. Cause most of them, the foot sits directly out of the prosthetic. Whereas I was, and I think to my credit was such an insecure young girl that I really wanted it to just look like it blended into my calf muscle. So I've kind of made that that way. So you've got a prosthetic thigh which matches your other thigh. I, I imagine quite specifically they would have measured, uh, done moulds of one thigh to match the other, just like they do with like Dylan's bum and his tennis wheelchair? Yeah, this is a, um, a, a tough one at the moment. So I get my prosthetic thighs made from a company who make um, they make the costuming for Lord of the Rings and they make monsters and they do things like that. So Hang on. They- wait, 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 wait. Go back. Very cool. That's sick. How's, how do you hit them up? Do you go, Peter Jackson, I need to help like my leg? How does that come about? Pretty much. My dad happened to know someone who knew Sir Richard Taylor. Oh, sorry, and dad joking, just, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> dad just called him and was like, hey, like dad noticed just how badly, like I stopped going anywhere. I would not go to any event. I wouldn't go anywhere. And dad was like, surely you guys, you make monsters. And this was years ago when nothing was done through CGI. Yeah. He was like, surely you can make the skill of thigh. Sorry, um, sorry to generalize as well, but of course, New Zealand guest, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that's just a straight up, straight up for <laughs> the rest I of the world. Which I have never seen, can I just say. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but Perfect. So you worked with um, the, I don't know, the reference to the guy that he, who, who was it talking about, the guy that he contacted? So Richard Taylor, so he started where to workshops and does yeah. all that kind of stuff behind the scenes there. Oh, cool. But um, yeah, it's something that the problem with having a prosthetic leg is that if your body, especially from a young age, if your body grows, it doesn't mm-hmm. grow with you. Mm-hmm. So I, and these thighs, they're not cheap. And so I had a thigh molded when I was about 16 and then up until probably four years ago, I was still wearing my 16-year-old thigh and I can guarantee my good leg is not the size of my (laughs) 16-year-old thigh. Um, And due to complications, I'm back wearing my 16-year-old thigh at the moment. But I look at the alternative, which is a very, very, very skinny thigh. So for me, it's better than nothing. And I wouldn't say it looks the same. It looks like I'm wearing a skin color sports bandage, which is why most people assume that I've had knee surgery when they ask me what happened to my leg. So you're yeah. 21 and you kind of did a you know 180 on your own mindset and how you viewed yourself and stuff like that. But there's one thing about looking in the mirror and accepting yourself and another thing to be an advocate and to put yourself out there and start working in the world that you did and, and shared and start sharing your story. Talk us through that journey. I largely fell into it, but at the same time, I always knew that sharing my story was something that I wanted to do. I just didn't know how that was going to happen. And I had always been really open to opportunities. You know, you always get asked by the odd person to come share your story or talk to someone's friend who needed help or whatever. Um, And so I'd always done that. And then I think it was 2016, I did a photo shoot. I just, I'd never modeled in my life, but I had a friend who's a photographer and I'd recently got a running blade prosthetic, which looked super rad and just really different. And so we did this photo shoot just for fun, put it on my Instagram of which I had no idea how to use. And I had no followers or anything. It was just friends and family. And within literally overnight, I think I got about 10,000 followers and it's just kind of blown since that. 
So I kind of in that way fell into the world and through each post. And, and to me, I think it helped that I got thrown into that world because I wasn't, I guess, really critical about what I was posting. I still just continued posting like, oh, this was me running today or attempting to run or whatever. So I was just posting about my life and my journey. And then I was starting to see the reaction back and how people were finding, I guess, inspiration in their lives from that. And it just kind of snowballed from there. So I guess being an advocate kind of just grew from that. And it, it just always felt right. Like I just felt like I was supposed to be telling my story and I felt really comfortable in that environment. And then, as you know, Dylan, I'm sure just kind of one opportunity leads mm-hmm. to another and all of a sudden you're, or one news article, all of a sudden you're a body image advocate. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, it's exactly. like things just kind of, um, and you just go with what feels right. I don't know how to really phrase this question, Jess. Mm-hmm. Because I don't really want to focus on the vanity of beauty because that's not what this obvious episode is about. But do people with a disability find it hard to relate to you? Yeah, that's the angle. Because yeah. you're aesthetically beautiful to what people hold up to the idea of beauty. Totally makes sense. And it's a conversation I have had in my head after being asked a similar kind of angle a couple of times. And it's something, and I've read articles on it. It's this whole, they call it pretty privilege. And it's something that I find, ah. it's a really weird thing to say, right? Yeah, like, it's it is like, a weird thing. I don't. Because you didn't name yourself that. It's someone who's putting yeah. that title a, on you. It's actually a good way to describe totally. it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I, I get it. It's what people, I mean, I'm a model, right? I, I understand. I'm models still to this day. Uh, pleasing to the eye if you like that's kind of a part of their role and I do find it really hard with I've never had any direct feedback from people within the disability community but you know and I find this with my my disability itself I'm I I can get around for the most part and do a lot of things so I'm like what is my right of being able to advocate when I and especially with disability there is literally no disability that's the same even another amputee is their experience is completely different from mine so it's really hard to be say that you're an advocate for that right um when you know I have no idea what Dylan goes through in his life directly apart from listening to his one-hour podcast interview Mm. you know it's like I, I think that's really hard but yeah in terms of the um the modeling side of it yeah it's hard and I I just hope that through what I'm doing, I'm not going to be the one disabled person that they pick all of the time. So I'm hoping that by me doing it once, they'll next pick, probably not Dylan, let's be honest, but they'll yeah. pick you know, someone else. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I love that. And it's, you know? it's, it's a good way to put it because the way that I describe it, and I'll ask you, if you take away the fact that you're a model and, and, and do what you do and, and an advocate and that, what are you? you just an amputee who had cancer as well. You know what I mean? Just like them. Totally. So there is an element where, you know, in mind's the Paralympic guy who's on the radio and that. I can't relate to him. But if you take away the, all that stuff, I also get people not letting me into their cafe because they've got two steps and they tell me I'm a fire hazard. Like it still happens. You know what I mean? So I yeah. think you need people to share stories like you are doing and putting yourself out there because hope, our hope, and I don't want to speak on your behalf, Jess, but our hope is it permeates down to the next generation and other people. And I don't I actually want to ask you about the landscape in New Zealand because what I say in Australia is I do not want to be the only one that's always on TV. Yeah, there needs 100%. to be actors, actresses, songwriters, artists, broadcasters, mm-hmm. not just me all the time. Like I get sick of myself as well. What's it like <laughs> in New Zealand? Like oh, we don't we don't know. What's it like over there for you? I personally think it's awesome. Obviously every minority needs there needs to be work at the moment in terms of representation, in terms of 
I'm definitely not the only person that I see on the screens. In fact, I think people are pretty over me now. So new people are coming through, which is amazing. There's some incredible, I don't know if you guys know of Grace Stratton, um, who's an amazing, she owns a modeling agency in New Zealand for people with differences. And I just think she is absolutely amazing. From an outside looking in, we think New Zealand's like that too, if that makes sense. So um, I think it's a, a beacon, even to the point where, we talked about this on radio the other week, you and I, Angus, the the new bachelor in New Zealand, he said, I want all shapes and sizes and colours, right? Yeah. And we talked about this in the Australian version of The Bachelor and Married at First Sight, are all white blonde people, right? It drives me crazy. So we saw that. I saw that article. I was like, awesome. And the other thing as well, when people think of diversity, they think of race straight away and that's it. And it's like, yeah, okay. They can, but what about there's other, you know, sexual orientation or disability or, or whatever. So it's good to hear where they're at. Angus, you know, I really considered going on the bachelor's only for the point of representation. Mm. I, it annoyed me so much. I was like, the thought of going on dating show just makes my ears burn, but I I wanted to get on there just to be like, are you serious? Mm. I'll use this example as well. Imagine how good the ratings would be, right? I'd use myself as an example. If I'm the bachelor and 20 girls get out and 10 of them are freaked out by the wheelchair, that would be the best show ever. Back in the limo. <laughs> <laughs> back in. What mission? What mission? What am I doing? What did you tell me this? Oh, that's so funny. Here's where I think the change needs to come when it comes to reality television examples. The casting of the main protagonist slash bachelorette, bachelor, uh, married contestants, they need to be the ones accepting to being open to diversity because – the casting directors will always put in some tokenism. Yeah. There's uh, an Indian guy in The Bachelor. They get out there's first round. But a black girl. And yeah. no, no, no. The person always keeps them around oh, for one yeah. or two weeks. They hate them, yeah. But then yeah. if you go and check out Lockie, Maddie, all of The Bachelors, the final six, white women. You have a partner, don't you, Jess? Totally. Todd, is that his name? Yes, I was they talking. Do. Recently. Damn it. That could've, you could have been in. You could have been the bachelor. Goddamn, Todd. You would have slashed. You would have killed it here in Australia. I did think about it, but I, I did not. Well, breaking up with Todd, Breaking up with Todd. Sorry, Todd. How are you feeling? Listen, I will too. Before I thought about it, A, my mum was going to kill me if I ever did it. And B, I had done Dancing with the Stars and I loved that experience. And I felt when I accepted that, that was the only form of reality TV show that I would ever go on because it's live and no one can edit me to be someone I'm not. So Mm. Uh, Good um, Good point. So let's talk about Todd then. Is this the first boyfriend? Have you had a few over the journey? Did you find you had to love yourself post-21 before you could open yourself up to the availability of somebody else doing the same? All of the above, except the first boyfriend thing. So I did have a boyfriend when I was 21. I must have got that age slightly wrong. Maybe I was about 18 when the whole shorts thing happened because mm. then I had my first boyfriend about 21 once I had found myself a little mm. bit more. Um, and that was just your typical kind of young love kind of situation that eventually fizzled. Um, and then, yeah, from about end of uni until last year, I've pretty much been single. Obviously I've had a lot of what I've called situationships. Um, with <laughs> a lot of That's good. Asshole men basically. <laughs> and I, I was just always adamant of, you know, all of my friends were in relationships really young, which, you know, if that's what they want to do, that's awesome. But I just wanted to spend my life understanding who I was as a person. And I think maybe that comes from, I wanted to know who Jess Quinn was aside from Jess Quinn with one leg, you know? And I wanted to explore what I was doing. Unfortunately or fortunately, I ended up in a job that was speaking about me having one leg for that whole time. But still it was that kind of self-discovery and I wanted, I didn't want to be someone else's before I knew who I was and really actually like the person that I was and what I wanted to do with my life. So 
yeah, I kind of just didn't really take that side of things too seriously. Um, and in my weird kind of job, I was kind of all over the show, which makes it quite hard to meet someone. Um, but yeah, then I, I was living in LA just pre-COVID and then moved home mostly because of COVID and yeah, jumped on a dating app, which I've always, I'm one of those people, I download them and I delete it within probably an hour because I'm like, nah, this isn't for me. And I just happened to stick it out that day. And yeah, we went on a date and Bob's your uncle. Uh, how did you go with intimacy and your body image in that relationship and allowing yourself to be seen? Um, I think because I didn't start dating until I'd gone through that mm. really hard stuff with the whole hiding my body that I felt good. And I think... I've been lucky for the most part that I have had intimacy with people who have been really awesome. I've probably only had one funny story um, that's come out of a situation like that. That was a one night stand situation um, where he was drunk. We went home. He felt my leg, asked why my thigh was so squishy. And then I had to tell him that I had a fond thigh because I have one leg. Um, but to his <laughs> credit, he was drunk and felt terrible in the morning. No. Um, well, he stuck around. So- he didn't bail. All right, good. <laughs> no, he didn't bail. Oh, good. I'm glad he stuck around. That relationship wasn't going to go anywhere. No. But no, I've been pretty lucky in that sense. And yeah, this um, new relationship is just anything is just more than I could have kind of imagined in that in that sense. Is there a moment of uh, revealing your leg without the prosthetic to that person? Because we had an, an amazing guest called Jess Van Ziel who uh, doesn't have one eye, and so she talked about with her partner. He finally said at home because she never let him see her without because she's just got her socket. Um, yeah. that exists. She doesn't have a fake eye or anything like that. And she talks sure. about this beautiful moment of her partner going, can you please take it off? And then this moment of acceptance. For you, was there a moment of, you know, showing uh, what lies beneath the prosthetic? I think it's still building. I, which might sound insane, but I, up until Todd, I have never taken my leg off in bed with anyone. Um, and I'm 28, which is wow. quite crazy. Good honesty. Yeah. Love and that. I I remember I was living with my sister at the time when we first started dating and, and it's not comfortable. And to be fair, the last two years, I've been going through a lot with my legs. So it's even more uncomfortable for me to sleep with my prosthetic on. And I remember texting my sister and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And it's, I don't even know what I was afraid of. Like I knew, I even said to my sister, I, was like, I know everything's going to be fine. It's just, I've never not done it. I've never taken my leg off around someone else. Like even my friends, I haven't. So you sleep all um, night then, with your prosthetic leg on when you're with someone. That is so uncomfortable. I couldn't imagine how uncomfortable that is. So I dated a guy for three years, two and a half years, and never took my leg off. What? And he's a great guy, so I don't want to say anything. But that that I could also have just done it. But there was a lot of I didn't feel comfortable yeah. to do it, mm. you know, whereas this, so comfortable. And But there is things that, you know, I don't even, if I'm at home staying at my parents, I don't even like crawling around at home my parents will see me and they're, they're nothing. It's completely normal, but I just feel very vulnerable in that mm-hmm. state. So I like to, I'm, I think that's the thing with having a prosthetic. I wake up in the morning. I've done this my whole life. I put on my leg and I do not take my leg off until I go to sleep. So I am with my prosthetic mm. all the time. I don't really even know myself without it. So to then do that with other people is quite um, confronting, I guess. So yeah, it's definitely a huge thing to go through. Um, I was going to say, thanks for being so honest with that as well, because we have people who are in similar situations to you listening, who would feel the same. And they would think, oh, she yeah. wouldn't do that. She, look at her. She's confident. Yeah. She's out there. You know what I mean? And that's totally. what it's all about. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. 
And it's it's hard on yourself more than anyone else. I know anyone that I chose to let into my life, they're great people because I want I'm not gonna date anyone that isn't. Yeah. And therefore I know they're gonna be accepting. But there's a lot that you've got to go through. It's the same as the shorts thing. That was something I had to go through. It wasn't about anyone else. Good luck on the journey to to that moment, you know? That's well, I awesome. mean, hang on. The journey's over. She's already dropped on. She's the new bachelorette. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start rumors. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just kidding, Todd. I love you, Todd. I'm not joking. I'm on Instagram. I see Todd. At I see Todd. Getting out there. Yeah. Oh my God, Todd. He hates the Instagram. <laughs> uh, Jess, we finish our podcast. Not usually finish, but most of the episodes we finish with a thing called the Bowl of Uncomfortable, where we let people ask questions that they might not feel comfortable asking you in person. They relate through us and give us the tough moments. I believe we have two. Yep. The first one is. Do you think the only reason you've had success in modeling and and the storytelling stuff you do is because you have one leg? Yes, I do, and I'm okay with that, and I'm happy with that, and I'm not saying that because I don't like the way I look. I'm saying that because that's how it was, and that was my purpose, and I also and I don't really like modelling. I wouldn't have gone to modelling <laughs> had it not been for trying to make a point. So, yes, 100%. Um, the second one <laughs> comes from Candice on Facebook. She says, do you think someone with a disability has more of a right to not love their body than someone who's, let's say, abled with a bit of slight acne and hates their skin they're in? That is a great question. And it's something I've never been able to put into words. That's a really good way to put it. But it's something I've definitely thought about. Something that I get a lot, and Dylan, you might have experience with this as well, is the whole you know, oh, like I've really hurt my ankle. Oh shit, I shouldn't complain because you've got one leg. But what I really believe and something I live by and try to share is I think our own mountains are, I guess, relevant to us, right? So someone in an enabled body who has acne, that's probably just as hard for them as it is for me to live in my body. If you put it out into the world, obviously those are two really different things, but we don't know any better than the bodies that we live in. And yes, like people like myself or Dylan, we go through much bigger challenges in our life, but we're also used to that. I think perspective always has a place and I think everyone should remember that. But I also think no one should be felt bad for their insecurities just because they are in a abled body or uh, they have another situation. Great question. Great answer. Yeah. I love that. And a great guest. Yeah. You're a star. We really appreciate you putting the time in um, and being some really honest answers in there, things I didn't know about you from, from Googling, you know what I mean? And I appreciate that, that you were so honest because I think your story is going to help a, a lot of people. Thank you. And thank you for doing what you guys do. Honestly, I've recently, I'm a new listener, but I have not stopped listening in the last few days. And I am someone who lives with a disability and I have learned so much. So thanks for that. Big thank you to Jessica Quinn, the absolute superstar, for coming on the podcast and being so honest about her story. And speaking of superstars, everybody that is taking photos of their Apple or Spotify or listener Mm. pods, wherever they get their podcasts from, thank you so much for taking snaps, sharing them. Our listenership's going up and up and up, and we're helping, you know, trying to change that conversation as much as we can. So thanks so much for doing it, and please tell your mates. And the great news is uh, we have now got some advertiser money that is going towards the Dylan Olcott Foundation, and uh, myself, Dylan, and Georgie, we're looking yep. for the right person to give a grant to, a wheelchair. Uni scholarship. All Could of be that. to learn how to podcast. Yeah. you got to let us know if you have a disability about what you want to do. Head over to the Dylan Orcott Foundation website to be able to check it out and send us your, uh, send us your application. Yeah, tell us about your story. Even if it, you might not want to share it on this podcast, maybe we can help you out with something else and make this money that our legendary advertisers who have advertised with us uh, goes towards. So thank you to everyone, and hopefully we can uh, change officially the lives of young people living with disability. And we'll see you next week. 
Listen Able was presented by Dylan Alcott and Angus O'Loughlin. Audio production by Darcy Thompson and the music was written and performed by Eliza Hull. Listener.